Hello, Capital Region. This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the ancestral and unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are now known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we take a break from our regular program to bring you a talk by Heather Briegel from August entitled, Not the Last of the Mohicans, A History of the Stockbridge Muncie Community. This talk was hosted by Rensselaer Plateau Alliance, part of a larger guests speaker series. The first voice you'll hear is Annie Jacobs, communications director at Rensselaer Plateau Alliance. Before I introduce our speaker tonight, Heather Bruegel, I want to say a few words about why we asked Heather to be here and really why we created this guest speaker series that starts now and goes into December. And so I invite you all to contemplate something and I, you might even wanna close your eyes um, in order to let your imagination go a little bit. So the land that we call the Rensselaer Plateau and Rensselaer County sits within the ancestral homelands of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican people. Looking up this history, I read that the Mohicans were here for around 14,000 years before European settlers arrived. However, recently when I asked Bonnie Hartley, who is the historic preservation manager for the Stockbridge Muncie community about this, she said, well, actually they consider that their people have been on this land from the beginning of time. And they did not own the land, rather they were or are still part of it. Their name means people of the waters that are never still, referring to the Mahikanatuk, which we know as the Hudson River. And although the Muncie Mohican people were forcibly removed and pushed westward and eventually resettled in Wisconsin, this land is still home to them. So as present day stewards of this land, at RPA, we acknowledge and we honor the area's original stewards. And as a land trust, we feel it is our responsibility to really make nature a safe and welcoming place for everyone and to include all voices at the table in our community conservation work, because community conservation is for everyone, nature is for everyone. To date, we have mostly served a white community and we know that the history of land conservation in the US has often excluded and harmed indigenous people and people of color. So as one step to sort of restory this or even to begin to heal these relationships, um, the RPA board and staff have worked hard to create this series, this guest speaker series, and to spread the word, to bring in um, new people and new voices. Our goal is really to expand the circle of who is heard and who is included. It is my great pleasure to introduce Heather Bruegel. Heather is a citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin and first line descendant Stockbridge Muncie. She is a graduate of Madonna University in Michigan and holds a Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts in US history. Her passion for Native American history was sparked by a trip to Wounded Knee in South Dakota. And since then, Heather has been what she calls an accidental activist. She speaks, she speaks to different groups about intergenerational trauma and racism and helps to bring awareness of our environment, the fight for clean water, 
policy and activism, and other issues in the Native community. A curiosity of her own heritage led her to Wisconsin, where she has researched the history of the tribes in the area. And up until yesterday, Heather was the Director of Cultural Affairs for the Stockbridge Muncie community. And as of today, she is the Director of Education for the Forge Project, which is based, I think, in Columbia County. I read about it and it sounds really interesting. So Heather might share a little bit about that as well. And with all that, I hand it over to Heather and thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you so much. I, uh, yeah, yesterday, how fitting, yesterday was my last day working for the community. And so um, I am moving on to a new adventure. So my name is Heather Briegel. My name in our language is Kishikunkwe, which means sunflower in full bloom. And um, I was given that name last September during the naming ceremony. So it's very important to me. It's not a name that I use very often, but I think it's um, when I'm talking about our people and who we are, I think it's important to talk about that. I also want to let you know that I'm coming to you from my home, which is seated seated on the unceded ancestral homelands of the Menominee Nation, whose ancestors that I pay respect to by doing things like this, by talking about our history, by letting people know who we are as Indigenous people and that we are still here and that we are still around and we have gone absolutely nowhere, that we're stronger than ever. And so um, I'm very honored tonight to be talking about um, one of my home communities, the Stockbridge-Muncie community. Um, as stated earlier, um, Annie let you know that I am an enrolled citizen of the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin, uh, but I'm a first-line descendant Stockbridge-Muncie. So I'm not enrolled in Stockbridge-Muncie, but um, I'm first-line descendant, which means in this particular case, my mother is enrolled, um, but I am not. And that is just based on a colonized um, setup called blood quantum. And so that's something that is totally could take hours to explain. But these Stockbridge Muncie are my people. I consider myself an Oneida Mohican woman. And so um, these are my ancestors. I have very strong Stockbridge Muncie ancestry um, and a history that goes back prior to the arrival of Henry Hudson. So I'm really honored to talk with you all tonight about who we are because we are not the last of the Mohicans. Um, I picked this title because um, if you're not aware, there was a book called Last of the Mohicans, James Fenmore Cooper, written in 1826, um, that kind of romanticizes the French and Indian War with some bits of truth in there. Uh, I'm a historian first, so when he is really talking about the French and Indian War and the battles, that is all real, but everything else was romanticized in it. And so um, that, I feel, even prior to working for Stockbridge Muncie, was a narrative that I felt I was constantly combating, that it was something that um, you know, we, we were constantly fighting. And then being in the trenches, working for Stockbridge Muncie community and having people say to me, um, you know, oh, you guys know that book, Last of the Mohicans, almost jokingly, not understanding that that title has been handed down through centuries as something that is real. Um, that we're, we're the last of the Mohicans, but we're not, we're still here, we're still thriving. And so tonight I'm really honored to be able to tell you about who we are, our history, all the way up into who we are today in 2021. So I hope you um, maybe learned something you didn't know before. And as was stated earlier, 
your questions can go in the chat and they'll be filtered to me um, at the end of the talk. Um, I do definitely want to leave plenty of time for question and answers because I do feel that um, we learn a lot through Q&A. So, um, so here we go. Last the last of the Mohicans. So first, I think it's important to talk about um, our, his, our, our territory. Now, you'll notice in our name, Stockbridge Muncie community, right? Band of the Mohican Indians. So Muncie is part of the Lenape. So that is part of our history. And I'll explain how we got our name later on. But I want to let you know where our territory is first. So our territory covered about six states. From Southwest Vermont, the entire Mahikonatuck River Valley of New York from Lake Champlain to Manhattan, Western Massachusetts up to the Connecticut River Valley, Northwest Connecticut, and portions of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And we also did have some very random settlements in Kansas, and that was um, during Indian removal, which was passed in 1830. We did have some community members that left Wisconsin and moved down to Indian territory, uh, but then turned around and came back. You'll notice on this map here, we have two um, circles, well, ovals, whatever, shapes that kind of outline our territory. The top part, you will see where you see Albany, and then that second circle is actually Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Um, all the way up to Lake Champlain and then coming down, that is our Mohican um, territory, our ancestral unceded lands of the Mohican people. The circle below it, where you see New York City outlined, that is the Muncie Lenape territory. Um, when we consult on projects, when we talk about our history, we include that land because it is part of who we are as Stockbridge Muncie people. So just so you have that clarification. So in essence, it's really from that top portion of Lake Champlain all down through New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So that's a pretty big area that we cover. Um, and we'll talk more about that later on when I talk about what the functions of the Cultural Affairs Department, the department that I used to run, do, because it's important to know that we are still active in that area today. So who are the Stockbridge Muncie people? We're Mohicans. We are known as the River Indians. We settled along the Mahikanatuck which is the river that flows both ways, um, which is today you know as the Hudson River. We are the Mahikaniuk people, the people of the waters that are never still, that is our name in Mohican language. Um, we were closely aligned with the Lenape, and at one point in time, uh, we referred to them as the grandfathers, and there was a strong alliance. So if they needed something, they could call on um, us, if we needed something, we could call on them. We numbered, the Mohican Indians numbered around 25,000 or more at a point in time. There are some dueling histories on our numbers. One says a flat out 25,000. Another version says it was 25,000 warriors, which would ultimately mean it was more people. So there is debate. But regardless, we were a very large nation at one point in time, covering the entire Mahikonatuck River Valley and the Berkshire area. So um, 
it's very important to note that. These were our homelands and clearly we're no longer there. And even while we were there, we lost part of our land through shady land agreements, um, agreements in quotation marks, because it's not necessarily, um, you know, they weren't uh, agreements that were made that we, you know, knew what we were agreeing to. One would argue, and I would argue, that um, all land from Indigenous people is unseated because agreements or treaties were written in the language of the colonizer, which was English. It was not our language. So how could we consent to something that we didn't understand? So through these shady deals, we slowly started to lose um, land in the Mahikanatuck River Valley. And that's important to note because land is central. Land and language are central to who we are as Indigenous people and the land means something to us. Just about um, a little over a month ago at the end of June, beginning of July, I for the first time was able to travel to the homelands. Um, we opened an exhibit in Stockbridge, Massachusetts at the Mission House, Mohican Miles. I encourage you to go visit. Um, and I clearly live in Wisconsin, but when I was there in New York and Massachusetts in our homelands, there was definitely a sense of feeling at home. I didn't feel out of place. There was a strange sense of peace um, and, and calmness being in those homelands. So that land today, even though we're not there, that land today still means something. It still calls you home. And when you are there, it really so that's really important to note as well. We had encounters with explorers pretty early on in our history um and being uh, and most of the east coast tribes did you had the pilgrims encountering the wampanoags and us encountering the dutch so early on we colonization started on the east coast and that is also why a lot of tribes on the east coast either number one removed and number two removed and there was that loss of history because everything happened so early on. So our journey with um, settlers, explorers, colonizers, whatever word you choose, started in 1609 when Henry Hudson came sailing up the Mahikanatuck into the land of the Mohican people. Um, with that sail, with that encounter in 1609, life was gonna change forever for the Mohican people. Um, that's true for any indigenous tribe. The first time you encounter those, the, the colonists, life is going to change forever. By 1614, there was a fur trading post that was established at present day Castle Island. And that inception of the, of the trading post, the fur trading post would then change the economic way of life for the Mohican people. It also started um, already tense relations. It made them even more tense. And so that became true with us and the Mohawk. Um, the, there was something that was started called the Beaver Wars. And these were battles for economic dominance in the area because beaver was a very coveted um, pelt. People, the Dutch and people in Europe just went crazy for it. So they wanted this. And so you had 
tribes working against each other to see who could dominate that trade. Um, you had, and it was mainly because we're talking about that New York area, it was mainly the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, and Haudenosaunee means people of the longhouse, um, which is the Six Nations against everyone else. And in our case, it was particularly us against the Mohawks or the Mohawks against us, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, and in 1628, the Mohawks defeated the Mohicans and pushed us east of the Mahikanatuk and created a monopoly of trade with the Dutch in what was called New Netherland. So these were economic battles that were happening, economic battles for dominance that were happening with the Mohawk eventually winning out over the Mohicans and pushing us farther out of our homelands. The fur trade, however, also brought a decline in the beaver population and the animal all but disappeared from the Mahikanatuk River Valley by 1640. Economic way of life for the Mohicans changed with contact, as I stated earlier. Traditional items were no longer being made. New items such as iron kettles, guns, uh, cloth, and colorful glass beads were now available. And I'm actually doing some research on the inception of beads and how they changed um, the way we did business, the way we lived, the way we traded, because that's really important. And beads, you will find if you do any research in Indigenous history, beads are something that um, are very valuable and something that is used um, in trade. So when you hear about the, the sale of Manhattan, you hear that there were colorful glass beads that were used as payment in that sale, quote, sale because um, that's debatable by a lot of historians. Historians go back and forth on that. But glass beads changed economic way of life forever for the indigenous people. With that also came the dependency on goods from the, the colonists and thus a paternalistic relationship between native nations and some form of government is formed. Even today in 2021, there is that parent-child relationship with the parent being the federal government and the child being the native nations. We are also at one point considered wards of the federal government. So there is that very much paternalistic way of thinking, which is interesting because most native tribes are actually matrilineal. So it's interesting to think about it in those terms. Like many native nations and particularly those on the East Coast, forced movement was inevitable and it was going to happen. We were eventually driven out of our territory west of the Mahikanatuk. In the early 1700s, the Mohicans moved further east near the Housatonic. The English now replaced the Dutch in the area. So we went from one set of colonists to another set of colonists. And eventually the British became the dominant force in that area. And with that, the um, this started under the Dutch too, but it very much continued on when the British took control. There was this idea of civilizing native people. Um, and that that actually, that way of thinking has never really gone away. If you are familiar with federal Indian policy and, and the idea of blood quantum and treaties 
and all of that, there is this idea that we need to be tamed because we are, we're savages. We don't, we, we live, you know, recklessly and we don't worship a Christian God and there's plural marriage and children are just running around. And so there's these myths about indigenous people because we weren't living um, what I consider a Eurocentric lifestyle. When in turns, we were just living how we were living. It was good and peaceful and prosperous and everyone was happy. But colonists came in and that being unfamiliar to them determined that we needed civilization. Um, and so then it even so much to the point um, where the Declaration of Independence is written. If you read it, if you read it closely, and, and I am, I'm a student of colonial history. So if you read the Declaration of Independence closely in there, it refers to us, the indigenous people, as merciless Indian savages, right? We are something that needs to be tamed because we are bloodthirsty and all of this other. So there was this idea of trying to civilize us. One of the things that they did in order to try to civilize us was create boundaries. Um, the idea of the modern boundary that we see today, like I know if I'm leaving Wisconsin, if I'm heading south, I know when I cross into Illinois because there's a sign that tells me and I've crossed a boundary. Those types of colonial boundaries did not exist in indigenous communities. We had ideas of whose territory was this and whose territory was that, but there was shared common ground, whether that was hunting ground, whether that was gathering ground, um, it was common and it was held in communal by each other. So there was that understanding. Colonists come in and they start to erect walls and fences to keep particularly us indigenous people out. If we were sharing a plot of land with you, a wall or a fence went up because we wanted to make sure or the colonists wanted to make sure the indigenous people knew where they stood and you couldn't come. You One of the most famous is Wall Street. Wall Street got its name because it was a wall, right? So, um, and you start to see Wall Street pop up on maps in the late 1600s. So it is a very old boundary that was put up by the Dutch to keep us out. And since the lands were declared to belong to the Europeans by right of discovery, you can also interpret that as the doctrine of discovery set forth by the Catholic Church, Mohicans couldn't defend their ownership in the courts of the colonists. We, we didn't have the opportunity to do that. We weren't, you know, we weren't able to defend our land rights in courts because these were just right of discovery um, claims by the colonists. And as more settlers started to arrive, not just Mohicans, but other indigenous nations in the area became dependent on the settlers in order to survive. It's that economic way of life changing. We became dependent on the goods that they had in order for us to continue to feed our families. But also with the arrival of more settlers and colonists, disease also arrives. So smallpox, measles, diphtheria, and scarlet fever, just to name a few, arrive in, quote, the new world. And we, as Native people, completely unfamiliar with these, these diseases, did not have immunity for these diseases. We begin to die. And hundreds of 
thousands and sometimes entire villages would be completely wiped out by these foreign diseases. There are readings, there are numerous readings um, that you can look back to primary sources written by um, pilgrims and others who came in and would stumble upon literally empty villages. And this is because disease had swept through and took out the indigenous people. So I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about the idea of missionaries and um, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is a significant place in our Mohegan his, uh, history. So missionaries arrived um, soon after colonists and entered native villages to help convert native people. Native people agreed to be Christianized after seeing the prosperity of the settlers. There was this idea they're prosperous. If we convert, we'll be prosperous as well. And many also converted to survive. Um, it's very interesting to think about my ancestors in particular converting to Christianity in order to survive. But any indigenous person converting to Christianity in order to survive. And this is not to dog on Christian religion. I am very much a to each their own. I'm cool. You can practice whatever religion you want or not practice at all. But it was weaponized when it was used to convert native people. It's because we were being seen as doing something wrong because we didn't worship the Christian God. So there is that um, kind of like ickiness, I guess, that goes along when you think about um, indigenous people being converted to Christianity. Um, many indigenous people felt that the God of colonists was more powerful. And so clearly that was the right God to worship. Stockbridge, Massachusetts plays a significant role in our history. In 1734, a missionary by the name of John Sargent came to the Mohicans, us, in the village of Wachukuk, a small little uh, village in Stockbridge that was what Stockbridge was referred to as the time because it was in our homelands. It was one of our settlements. He preached to and baptized many Mohicans and they started to take on Christian names, John, Rebecca, names that you would find in the Bible. In 1738, we gave John permission to start a mission in the village. And it's located on the Housatonic River near Great Meadow, bounded by the Berkshire Mountains. And I have to say the Berkshire Mountains are beautiful. I was absolutely stunned with how beautiful the area was when I was in Stockbridge um, not that long ago. More settlers moved to the area. And after they moved to the area, they were all English settlers. The area was then renamed to Stockbridge because it reminded them of Stockbridge, England. So they named it Stockbridge. Other native groups then also came to the area and they decided they wanted to hear the mission, um, hear John's uh, uh, sermons and, and convert to Christianity. This would have been the Wappingers, the Brothertons, the Pequots, the Mohawks, who once um, beat us in the Beaver Wars, the Narragansetts, the Oneidas, and others. And these groups kind of merged with the Mohicans and collectively we were all called Stockbridge Indians. They just blanketly named us Stockbridge Indians. In the town of Stockbridge, there were other significant buildings that were erected by us, um, a meeting house and many other significant locations within the town that are important 
to our history and the town today still contains many historical documents that are important to our history. When I was in Stockbridge this past uh, about a month ago, I went to the mission house because we were opening up an exhibit there. <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, I walked into the mission house and immediately got um, very sad and it felt and, and felt very heavy because knowing what had happened in and around that that house itself was very distressing to me. Knowing that my ancestors were um, preached to and, and converted to Christianity there because they were they were trying to survive was very hard to take on. And so it took um, it took a little while for me to be comfortable being at the mission house just because of the history that I knew that had happened there with my ancestors. Eventually, by the end of my trip, I could walk in and out of the building and I was fine with it. But I think having an understanding of that history, but also being able to empathize and feel what they might have been feeling at that time was extremely um, significant. So there were a lot of wars that happened and Mohicans were involved in these wars every single time. Between um, 1700 and 1800, we were caught up in a war that happened on this continent. The French and Indian War was a conflict between France and England over the territory that was taken from Native people. The American Revolution was a war about creating a new nation on that stolen land. The War of 1812 saw Native nations who once fought on the side of the Patriots now fighting against them in order to retain some of their homelands. Between 1775 and 1783, Stockbridge Indians served in many battles in the American Revolution. Yes, we did fight on the side of the Patriots. My Oneida ancestors also fought on the side of the Patriots. That's kind of how the Iroquois Confederacy broke up, was you had some tribes who wanted to remain neutral, you had other tribes who would fight on the side of the British, and then you had others who fought on the side of the Patriots. And so there was a lot of inner fighting between Native nations when it came to the American Revolution. We were instrumental in the American Revolution um, us, along with Oneidas and Tuscarora and other Native nations, fought alongside the colonists in a group called the Stockbridge Militia. And the Stockbridge Militia actually fought under George Washington. And we fought in many, many different battles. The Siege of Boston, Battle of Saratoga, and the Battle of Kingsbridge in the, uh, Kingsbridge in the Bronx. Um, we were very good at what we did. And actually at the Battle of Kingsbridge, Kingsbridge bridge in the Bronx was where we suffered the most casualties. Um, and so, but we still fought bravely amongst all of the other soldiers in there. We also fought um, in uh, the French and Indian War, where we served in Rogers Rangers. Um, it was two companies of Mohicans that fought in Rogers Rangers during the French and Indian War. In 1783, George Washington held an ox roast for us in Stockbridge to thank us for fighting in that war, for being the backup that they needed. Um, and honestly, if you really study the American Revolution and the history of it, a lot of things would have gone significantly different if it hadn't been for indigenous nations. So if you look back to what was happening at Valley Forge and the famine and not being able to get food, it was the Oneida people, my people, who broke that famine and brought food to George Washington and his troops 
there. It was also us and other indigenous nations who really uh, came in at a time that was needed and really helped turn the tide of the war in favor of the patriots. But after George Washington shows, uh, throws us this ox roast, um, we are then forced out of Stockbridge. We get back from war and a lot of the land that we had had been taken and it had been taken for really, really petty reasons. Um, we weren't there, that, whatever reasons they could come up with. And we were eventually then forced out of Stockbridge. So after leaving Stockbridge, we moved to New Stockbridge, New York, near Oneida Lake. The Oneida who fought in the war with the Stockbridge offered us a portion of farmland and forest about six square miles. Um, and we accepted that and we moved there. About 300 of us moved there. <clears throat> Mary Dockstater and other women started a spinning school enterprise. And by 1850, it involved 60 Stockbridge Mohican women and girls. We also set up a grist mill and a school and basically created a whole new village. Uh, between 1793 or 1791 and 1793, Chief Hendrik Oppermott, who served as one of our greatest leaders, served as a peace commissioner. He represented the nation in the Ohio River Valley among traditional relations with the Lenape, the Shawnee, and others who were part of the United Indian Nations Confederacy that sought to maintain territory independent of the United States and British Columbia. And this would actually come under the, um, of, uh, the rule of Tecumseh, who was a Shawnee who was raising an army um, of warriors to fight against the United States to retain some sort of traditional land base. So we, um, you know, Hendrik Oppermott joins up with them, tries to keep the peace and tries to keep, um, but he also is the one, Hendrik Oppermott, who rides in the area and gets uh, people involved in the War of 1812 when that starts to happen. And you see in the War of 1812, tides change. Those of us who fought with the Patriots during the American Revolution, after being forced off of our land, now fight for the British in the War of 1812 to try to regain some of that land back. Well, after we get all set up in New Stockbridge, we're then forced to move to White River. And the Lenape were living there at the time. The Lenape are also referred to as the Delaware um, because they were near the Delaware River and that was a colonized name that was given to them. There was consistent pressure to move all of the time. And we journeyed to White River about, it took a year to get there. Um, and when we got there, we discovered that the Lenape had been coerced into selling the land that they had. We were going to live with the Lenape. Um, and John Sargent is quoted as saying about a third of my church and a quarter of the tribe, which was about 70 souls, started from this place for White River. So seven, about 70 souls traveled to White River and we get there and we find out there's no place to stay. So we're basically couch surfing while leaders in New York are trying to negotiate for new lands in Wisconsin. We were led to White River by John Matoxin, uh, who was also another great leader in our tribe. He also then helps lead us to Wisconsin as well. So we get to Wisconsin. <laughs> Um, back in New York, before we get to Wisconsin, though, there's negotiations that are happening. So back in New York, people from the War Department, where at the time uh, Indian Affairs uh, was housed, were negotiating with the Menominee and Ho-Chunk people here in Wisconsin. A treaty was reached in 1822, and the Stockbridge moved again. 
This time we moved to Kakana, which was along the Fox River, and many others from New York who stayed behind joined us there in Kakana. We were per perhaps, perhaps, the first English-speaking people in the area. Electa Quinney, who is a Stockbridge woman, was our first school teacher here. We had the first Protestant minister, and we had the first Christian temperance union in the area. But just because we were sized didn't mean we were going to be able to stay for long. The Fox River became a major waterway. Wisconsin is known uh, for dairy, obviously now, but um, lumbering, rich forests here. Lumbering and rivers, as we know historically, are used as ways of transportation. So the Fox River became a major waterway transportation, and we were forced to move again, this time to the uh, east shore of Lake Winnebago in 1834. It was when we moved to that area, which is Stockbridge, Wisconsin, that a group of Muncie Lenape people came to join us. And that is when we became known as the Stockbridge Muncie community. So our name has taken many shapes over time. When you hear us refer to ourselves today, though, we a lot of times, nine times out of ten, we will see Mohican Nation, Stockbridge Muncie Mohican Nation, Stockbridge Muncie Band of the Mohicans. We make sure that Mohican is in there because we want everyone to know that we are Mohican. Finally, <laughs> the federal government under Andrew Jackson was forcing removal and land sessions through a lot of Native tribes. Um, Indian removal was passed in 1830, signed into law, and that basically uh, started the Trail of Tears for a lot of the southeastern tribes in the United States. A group of Stockbridge Mohicans who feared the inevitable moved to Indian territory in 1839, thinking we were gonna be moved as well. Many died along this journey. Some reached Kansas and Oklahoma and married into other tribes. Others gave up and moved back to Wisconsin when it gained statehood in 1848. Um, it was also during this time too that there were a series of treaties and congressional acts that were passed that really did affect the Stockbridge Muncie community. You had the Congressional Act of 1843, which was passed, and it made the Stockbridge citizens of the United States. On paper, this doesn't sound absolutely terrible, but what it did is when it made us citizens of the United States, it stripped away our tribal loyalty. It also divided up land that the nation held at Lake Winnebago, and in addition to that, it caused an internal conflict, which divided the nation into two factions, Citizen Party and the Indian Party. And I can tell you today, even in 2021, you will still hear sometimes people saying, if, if you talk about the Indian Party or the Citizen Party, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, well, that family, they were citizens part, Citizen Party. And they say it with a little like snobbery because we remained Indian Party. And what that did is Citizen Party was all for the citizenship. Indian Party was not wanting to retain tribal sovereignty. Um, the Indian Party stated that the Congressional Act stripped us of the rights to be Indian. So John Quinney, who was probably the greatest diplomat that we had at the time, greatest diplomat and leader, um, I would argue in history, traveled to Washington, D.C. a dozen times to lobby on behalf of the Stockbridge Muncie people and to have that act overturned. So in uh, finally, the Congressional Act of 1848 was passed, and this reversed the Congressional Act of 1843. This became a concern when non-Native people began to take advantage of those in the Citizen Party and started to buy up all the land around them. It reinstated the right to be a sovereign nation, 
and it also reimbursed the nation for improvements made to the land and held the money in trust to gain interest. But at the same time, we were on the move again. So we're still in Stockbridge, Wisconsin, which is in the southern part of Wisconsin. The Treaty of 1856 established a reservation for the Stockbridge Muncie community in northeast Wisconsin in Shawano County in the townships of Red Springs and Bartlemy. Farming was attempted, but the land was sandy and swampy, and it still is today. It's a lot more easy to farm, though. Um, and forestry became the economy. Outsiders, though, came in and cleared the land, lumber barons. And in 1871, the tribe was forced to sell 54 sections of forested land in order to survive. So John Quinney is one of, again, like I said, one of the greatest diplomats, I would argue, that we um, have in Stockbridge Muncie community. And I wanted to just take a moment and excerpt part of his 1454 speech that he did in Reedsville, New York. Let it not surprise you, my friends, when I say that the spot on which we stand has been purchased or rightly obtained, and that by justice, human and divine, it is the property now of the remnant of that great people from whom I am descended. They left in the tortures of starvation and to improve their miserable existence. These events not above our comprehension and for wise purposes. For myself and my tribe, I ask for justice. I believe it will sooner or later occur. And may the great and good spirit enable me to die in hope. So John Quinney did not mince words. Um, the speech is actually much longer. I encourage you to find online to read it. I encourage you to read the whole thing. It has been compared a number of times to um, Frederick Douglass's 4th of July speech. And so is it his fault? He doesn't mix them. He talks about the atrocities that were committed against the Mohican people, against indigenous people in general by the federal government. And it's really important to note that. The Reservation, again, created in 1856 in the townships of Red Springs and Bartlemy's. It, um, as you can see, it butts right up against the Menominee Reservation because it was Menominee land at one point, Honechuk and Menominee land. The area was very rich in timber, very rich in timber, and lumber barons came in and basically clear-cut the whole land. So in order to survive, the tribe, like I said, had to sell off 54 acres of this land. So we are virtually, by the 1930s, left landless. It's a very, very torrid tale of, of what happened to the Stockbridge Muncie people to us once we got here. Um, and so you would think that would have been it. That would have been the, that would have been the last of the Mohegans, except it wasn't because we're a strong million people. And we were, the Indian Reorganization Act is passed in 1934. And this is after uh, federal policies has started to take a toll on Native nations. The IRA stopped the policy of allotment, which was making nations dividing them up and then selling off the excess land. It tribal nations to form their own governments again. That is very important. In 1937, a constitution was written based on the model, and there is now a land base to build homes on. Documentary regained 15,000 acres of the township of Bartlemy. 25,000 or 2,500 of those acres were placed in trust. And in 1972, the remaining 13,000 were then placed in trust. The Indian Reorganization Act encouraged the reestablishment of tribal governments, 
by tribes across the nation. The tribe could adopt their own constitution and they could draft their own. This is very important to understand. Under the leadership of Carl Miller, who is photographed in the first, the top picture here, the Stockbridge Muncie reorganized their tribal government and regained federal recognition. Using federally secured funds through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the tribe managed to buy back that land that they had lost. Currently, the Stockbridge Muncie um, have, we have a land base that's just under 25,000. Um, but that all started with re reorganization and regaining that land back. The bottom photo here, picture Miller, who was tribal president for 26 years, and Arvid was instrumental in his own right that he was, uh, he helped form the Great Lakes Intertribal but he also helped form the National Congress of the American Indians, which is the largest group, uh, lobbying group in Washington, D.C., for to fight on behalf of Indigenous rights. Today, we are the largest employer in Shawano County. Uh, we have a land base that is just, just under 25,000, and we have enrollment of around 1,500 people. Um, actually, I believe that number is more closer to 2,000 now. So we are, and we take our role uh, as being the largest employer in the county very seriously. That is very important to us, and we understand the duty that we have to those in, in the community. And just a little bit about our cultural affairs department houses three programs. The first is the Arvid E. Miller Memorial Library and Museum. Um, it acts as a library where you can check out books, but it also is a museum where we house cultural significance to our community. And it is obviously named after Arvid E. Miller. And it also um, hosts both the largest set of Mohican archives in the world. Anything you want to know about Stockbridge Muncie people, you will find here. We have our historic preservation program, which is actually located in Williamstown, Massachusetts at Williams College. So right smack dab in the middle of our homelands. Um, and this office is tasked with preserving and protecting sites of cultural significance to Stockbridge Muncie community, in addition to our greatest role of repatriating ancestors who, uh, whose remains have been housed in museums um, and we are able to repatriate those and bury them, give them back the proper burial that they deserve, but also go and find objects of cultural significance that should be in our possession and not just out there in, um, in museums. Um, the second is language revitalization. We are unique to recognize in our tribe. We have our Muncie language, which revitalization with that started in the 1960s and 70s with community members traveling to Moravian town in Canada, where the language was still fluently spoken. They learned, they immersed themselves in that, and then brought that language back to the community. And then just within the past few years, it hasn't even been a decade yet, within the past few years, years we've taken the Mohican language, which just lived on paper, and started to bring it back alive again. The last fluent speaker of the Mohican language died in the 1930s. And from that moment on, the language was just on paper. We had nobody who could speak it. We don't have anyone who can fluently speak it now, but we, we have worked very close to come towards um, speakers. And it is feeling very strong in our department, our department, in their department. Um, and I'm very excited to see what can happen in the next few years where we may actually end up with those 
first language speakers again and um, uh, fluent speakers. And just for reference, these photos were taken pre-pandemic. Um, we have not had any large gatherings since the pandemic happened. And I lastly want to leave you with our many trails symbol. It was created by Edwin Martin, who is Stockbridge uh, Mohican man who created this symbol and it means strength, endurance and survival. And every single line on this symbol means something. So you'll see the straight lines, you know, show the trails that we've been on. But you also see at the top of the straight lines, it forms a cross. And then the curved line is hands raised in prayer. So that represents Christian converting to Christianity, worshiping God and or the Great Spirit. The circles represent our council fires. Our council fires is our seat of government. And there, obviously, our seat of government has moved several times, but the, the circle is all-encompassing, represents the fire, where, and it shows that our seat of government today lies in Bowler, Wisconsin, whereas our one of our first council fires was at Skodak Island. So the, the seat of government moved every single time we moved. So that seat of government today resides in Bowler, Wisconsin. And so this, again, strength, hope, endurance, and survival. I think it really represents the resiliency of our people. And it is a symbol that if you see, you know automatically that's Stockbridge Muncie. A few books that you may want or check out. The first few are books that represent Stockbridge Muncie history, A Nation of Statesmen by James Oberly. This book, again, is great because we were a nation of diplomats, of statesmen, of lawyers who lobbied on behalf of the Stockbridge Muncie community. You have the Mohicans of Stockbridge and then the Mohicans and their land and the Mohican world, both by Shirley Dunn. Um, they are unfortunately out of print right now so if you can find them they're going to be very expensive but before i did leave um my position at stockbridge Muncie community i did negotiate with the publisher to get some of these reviewed. so they will be available at the stockbridge Muncie gift shop here in wisconsin and uh you can call pay over the phone and we do ship so those are really good but the next two are books that I think you should have in your library for overall Indigenous history. And that is An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxane Dunbar-Ortiz, and then The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer. An Indigenous People's History follows the Indigenous history of this country prior to and during colonization. You cannot have it in the United States without having the history of the Indigenous people told. They're intertwined. Our history is older than that of the United States, and it's very important to, to know that. The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer picks up where Dee Brown left off with um, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. In Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, Dee Brown leaves, stops at 1890, saying all resistance, Indian resistance is over. That is just not true. Resistance still happened and IRU maintains today. It just took a different form. And The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Troyer talks about that. I actually, um, in March, did a virtual interview with David Troyer, which you can find on um, the Cultural Affairs Department's page, which is the Arvid E. Miller Library Museum and Cultural Affairs Department, um, where we talk about this history and the importance of that. So these are books that I recommend should be in your library, on your Kindle, however you want to read them, but they are extremely um, important and can help you learn more about Stockbridge Muncie people, but also Indigenous people as well. 
And then finally, I do share a lot of stuff on social media, particularly in my new job with Forge Project. So you can follow me on the Twitter and Instagram um, where I post historical things and fun things. And then you can see fun pictures of my dogs if you want. So um, I absolutely want to thank you guys all for taking time out of your evening to, to speak or to hear me uh, this evening talk about history that I am super passionate about. I am first and foremost a historian, and I am an Oneida and Stockbridge Muncie woman who is passionate about our history. So I'm very excited that I was able to share this with you this evening on apparently this inaugural uh, guest speaker series. So thank you so much for joining me. And with that, I'm going to mute myself, take a drink of water and open it up to questions. Thank you so much. Questions, I mean, it can be about Stockbridge Muncie, it can be about indigenous history, um, I specialize in federal Indian policy, so if you have questions about that, there's no question that is offensive. You can ask me anything, because if you don't know something, I would rather you ask. Thank you. That's great yeah. to know. Yeah. Here's one to start. Sarah Davis says, I'm wondering what your stance on the hashtag land back movement is. Does your nation have a policy in place for accepting ancestral land back? Um, we do not have a policy in place. That is something that we have discussed. It's very difficult um, when we are not in our homelands anymore. We don't want to be those absentee land holders, but we also, um, prior to my leaving too, we're trying to come up with a way of how we could do that. In fact, just before I left earlier this year, we did retake ownership of Papskini Island, which is an island in the Mahikanatuk um, that is um, uh, it's a nominee for the National Registry, and we just got a grant um, to actually move it to the next level to actually have it become a historic uh, on the National Registry for historic places, not just a nominee, but an actual labeled historic place. Um, and that island is significant because it's named for Papskinny, who was one of our sachems or leaders. Um, he was one of our leaders in the 1600s, and it, that's where he lived. And the island, there is some agricultural development on one side of it, but on the other side of it, it's completely untouched. And so that is really important. And it, that is very significant to us. Um, land back is more than a hashtag. I encourage you to visit the NDN collective to learn more about land back and how it originated. And the idea behind land back first started, um, it first launched uh, last year on Indigenous Peoples Day, but it's an idea that's been brewing for a very, very, very long time. Um, it's the concept of just that, returning the land back to the Indigenous people. And one of the big issues um, that land back is tackling is the return of the Black Hills to the Lakota. This summer, I actually did an entire talk out in the Black Hills at the Crazy Horse Memorial on why or how the Black Hills were stolen and the fight to get them back. And I basically told a group of tourists who came to hear this talk, explain to them why they shouldn't be there, why this, why the museum I was, I was talking in shouldn't exist. Um, and it was, it was actually very well received. I was a little nervous giving that talk, but it was 
is well received and understanding the concept of land back and what it means and and understanding that this continent turtle island is all indigenous land and so again you can visit the ndn collective and also if you're going to follow the hashtag land back you can follow it on various social medias and learn more about what it means and the importance of it you just heard Heather Briegel presenting her talk, Not the Last of the Mohicans, A History of the Stockbridge-Munsee Community, hosted by Rensselaer Plateau Alliance. At the time of this talk, Heather Briegel was transitioning from her position as Director of Cultural Affairs for the Stockbridge-Munsee Community. Heather Briegel is currently the Director of Education at Forge Project, and this was her quick explanation of that organization. Forge Project is a new organization that is based on the ancestral homelands of my ancestors, the Mohegan people in upstate New York, which I will be moving to um, in October, but it is raising awareness of indigenous issues in indigenous communities by supporting those on the ground who are working in climate justice, um, cultural awareness, and social justice. And we do that by providing fellowships to these to to these indigenous movers and shakers in their community because we understand that to do this work is taxing um it can take a toll and oftentimes you can't devote as much to to this work that you want because there are other things you have to worry about you got to pay your rent you got to pay daycare you got to buy food and we provide a fellowship that allows you to do this work without having to worry about those things in addition to that we are promoting the awareness of indigenous artists who do not get the same um, level of notoriety as non-indigenous artists. So you can't you can't completely strike down capitalism, but you can manipulate the way that it's used, right? So we can bring awareness and get indigenous artists into spaces that they may not have been able to get in before. And then finally, the third thing that we work on that I oversee is um, the institution of small seed grants for cultural and educational institutions that are looking to decolonize their curriculum, their programming, their museum labels, things like that. Having been in the museum world, the one thing that stands in your way is lack of funds. And so that is something that we want to change. And then um, I will also continue to be doing talks like this, um, trainings for different organizations who are working on land acknowledgements or want to know more about cultural appropriation, but in addition to all of the other educational talks that I do. So that is Forge in a nutshell, but you can go to forgeproject.com to learn more. To hear more audience questions from this talk, you can find more information to the guest speaker series and a link to this recording at rensselierplateau.org. And that concludes this special episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine.